Do we have a number picked out? 902? 909. 909. Okay, go ahead and mark that in your book, if you will. 909. I thought maybe I just missed it. Which happens. Yeah, it is a taste of spring out there, isn't it? I don't mind that one little bit. Very happy about that. God is good. All the time. And I'm glad we're here today. I appreciate the uh, singing. Everyone seems like we're, uh, we're into it, and, and that's good. I always enjoy that. Just wanted to uh, kind of punch one little, one little thing here. Uh, we are very close to, what, well, this is February 8th. I guess we've got a few weeks. But we need to be working on getting these houses together, these homes together for home groups. And um, it is going to take uh, uh, a few more homes than what we've got to actually make this thing work. And if you would, uh, if you find it in your heart <laughs> to uh, be a host for one of those groups, that would be great. And uh, regardless, we're going to have we're going to go through the the material and everything, but we may be doing it in ways that uh, uh, a little different. But anyway, uh, please consider that. All right, uh, I promised you last week or when whenever the last time was, I can't remember that this would be the last last round with this dreaming business. We've been talking about God's dream, God's dreams for us. And how that when God's dream becomes our dream, that's a, that's a very powerful combination. And even when God's dream is big and just amazing, when we kind of get on his, uh, on his plan, on, into his dream, those things begin to happen. He has ways of making those things happen. He's waiting for us to get into his plan. So we've been talking about God's dream. The thing I want to talk about this morning is what I'll call selfish dreams. Sometimes we get things turned around. And it's kind of like we say, Lord, here's my dream. Here's my agenda. Here's what I would like to see happen. And I want you to just put your stamp of approval on it and I'll be on my way. Here's what we need to do. And it's, a, it's kind of a funny thing how, how that happens. We, we kind of get fixated, fixated on something that we believe that needs to happen in our lives or whatever uh, situation that we're in. We, we've got a dream. We've got a vision of, of how things need to go. And we more or less put that out there in front of God and say, hey, put your stamp of approval on this and let's get going. There's a world of difference between a Christian who seeks God's dream and is willing to become a part of that dream when he finds it, and a Christian who is kind of pushing his own agenda and merely wanting God to get on board. You understand what I'm saying? Those are two different things. That first person I'm describing seeks to be used by God and to do his will, to become a tool in his hand. The second person seeks to use God to get his own will done. And that's a huge difference in thinking. Generally speaking, we don't have any problem determining God's general dream. We know basically what the big picture looks like for us while we're here on earth. There's, uh, we've got the Bible, and the Bible describes for us in a general way a life, a kind of life, and things that we ought to be doing that should be incorporated in our life, regardless of what the details of our lives might be. 
And, and we know that no dream that God would give us would contradict his word. But there's a whole other part of life that the Bible doesn't speak directly about. There's personal details. And that's, that's a different matter. We don't always know exactly what God wants us to do in those areas. For instance, the Bible won't tell you if you need to go on for higher education. Or how far you need to go in school. Or where you ought to go to school. The Bible won't tell you where you ought to live. The Bible won't tell you what your career ought to be. Or whether you need to buy or rent. The Bible won't tell you if you need to marry or who you ought to marry if you decide that you should marry. The Bible won't tell you how many children, uh, if, if you do marry, how many children you ought to have. The Bible won't tell us what our ministry ought to be, not in specifics. The Bible won't tell us these things. But God does have a way of communicating his will in these areas. And it's not something you're going to read on the scripture. And it comes from a, a, a verse. I mean, the, the, it, this, is, this is a major way. It's not the only way. But I think this is how God uh, conveys a lot of this information to us. It's James chapter 1 and verse 5. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and upbraids not. And it shall be given to him. And so there we are. It, it's, it's the avenue of prayer. And, and, and when he talks about wisdom, what, what he's talking about is wisdom is seeing things the way God sees them. And understanding things the way God understands them. The problem is that sometimes we, uh, not only do we ignore scripture, but we neglect to pray and we start creating our own dreams. And we tell God, this is it, make it happen. And somewhere along the line, we end up being mad at God when it doesn't happen. And we get even more upset when we've kind of walked our own path, thinking we, God was with us on this path. And we run into serious problems. I, I know of more than one uh, situation, one instance of how things happen just about that way. Now we come to the story of Jacob. Our scripture reading this morning was from Jacob. And Jacob, at the first part of his life, the first part of his life he spent pursuing his own dream in his own way. He was kind of on what I call the selfish dream path. He was a worshiper of Jehovah. But I would not say that Jacob was the most devoted worshiper that God had in Jacob's day and time. Did God have a dream for him? Yes, I think that's very clear. In our uh, scripture reading this morning in Genesis chapter 25, there's a reading there. Uh, there's some information there about at the time that he is being conceived in his mother's womb. It's interesting. Uh, it, it says there that, that uh, Isaac prayed so that his wife could have a baby. She'd been barren up to that point. He prayed. She had a baby. And she would, all this stuff is going on inside of her womb. All this uh, banging and knocking around and everything. And, and she's uh, kind of concerned about it. I don't know if she knew she had twins at that point or not. But, she, uh, but So she inquires of the Lord, and there's a message that comes back. And here's what, here's what the Lord said about those two babies that were in the womb. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And, and I'm just reading this to say that God had his eye on this situation, on these two, two people. You know, there was already a plan in place. There was a dream that he had in mind. And so Jacob's, the thing I'm wanting you to see is that God did have a dream for him. But Jacob's dream was different from God's dream. I think it was kind of a selfish agenda, a selfish dream. He, he, he was involved in, in selfish, underhanded ways. We're going to see some examples of this in just a moment. 
And that what he did resulted in some serious problems for him and for his family. There's two incidents in the first part of uh, Jacob's life that show the kind of person that Jacob was. I'm looking at Genesis chapter 25, verses 27 to 34, right in there. And at this time, Jacob and Esau are both about 30, maybe 35, maybe 40 years of age. And there's something that comes up here in chapter 25. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I'm famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Now, here's the, here's the incident as it happens here. I mean, uh, interesting little story. Uh, Esau was a guy that liked to be out in the field hunting and fishing and things like that, evidently. Uh, Jacob was more of an agricultural kind of guy, uh, keeping animal husbandry and that sort of thing. He kind of stayed around, around the farm there. But one day he's cooking some food, a real nice pot of food, and Esau comes in and he just famished. And he just says, you know, could I have some of the food? Could you give me some of what you got here? Now, under ordinary circumstances, one brother would share his food with another, and that would just be it. You know, you're my brother. Sure, I'll share it with you. But when Esau asks to have some food, what happens? Jacob jumps on that like, man, like white on snow or something. I don't know what. He, he jumps on that just immediately. Hey, if you give me your birthright. What's he been thinking about? What has been occupying his mind up to this point that when his brother asks for a bowl of food, he knows he's hungry, the first thing he asks about is, what about your birthright? In this, in this case, Esau had the birthright because he was a firstborn. He'd been born maybe uh, just a few, uh, a few minutes or so before uh, Jacob was, but technically he had the birthright. That was kind of an important thing to have. But what, what I'm saying is that there's, there's a guy here in this story, his name is Jacob, and he's got his eye on something that belongs to someone else. And he's been thinking about how he might find an opportunity to get that, that birthright. So we go on to read the rest of the story here, 32 through 34. Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is this birthright to me? And Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So we, we look at this story, and we, there's two things you see here. First of all, Esau had to be a fool to give up something as important as his birthright for a pot of stew. We've we got to say that. But the other thing is, is that he had a brother named Jacob who wanted to get that birthright some way or the other. He had his own agenda. And he was willing to manipulate and take advantage of, of circumstances as they came along to get that birthright. So that we find out something about Jacob right here in this story. Here's the second thing I, I want you to see. This is our, our kind of early in his life. Um, well, when you consider that he lived to be a, a very ripe old age. He's 77 years of age when, when this next one happens. It's Genesis chapter 27. He and Esau, of course, they're twins. They're both about 77. Isaac is 137 years old at this point. And then we're at the beginning of chapter 27. Verses 1 and 2. Now it came about when Isaac was old, and his eyes were too dim to see, that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son. And he said to him, Here I am. And Isaac said, Behold, now I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Verses 3 and 4. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt grain for me, and prepare a savory dish for me, such as I love, and bring it to me, that I may eat, so that, I, so that my soul may bless you, before I die. 
So, you know what the story is in this family. Isaac, uh, Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah, the mother loved Jacob. And so there's a conflict that's going on here. It was Isaac's will to give his blessing, the blessing that he received from Abraham, his father, to pass it on to, uh, to Esau. But someone overheard that conversation and um, didn't want that blessing to pass to Esau. That was Rebekah. And so there was a blessing here from Abraham is going to be passed on. Isaac intended to give that blessing to Esau. Rebekah overhears, and she hatches a plan to deceive, to deceive, and so that Jacob, her son, will receive the blessing. And you, know, you remember how that story works. You know, there's, some, there's a lot of deception there, a lot of, a lot of things going on. Until we come to Genesis chapter 27, verse 41, here's the reaction of Esau to what happened there. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. That's how Esau reacted to all of this. Okay, so we've got these two examples of what I call a guy with his own agenda. A guy who's willing to do some, uh, some pretty underhanded, deceitful type of things to get what he wants. Jacob was a worshiper of Jehovah. He had a covenant relationship with God. God had a dream for him, but he was a man with his own dreams, his own plans, his own agenda. He was willing to lie, cheat, manipulate, and steal. And here's the result of all this. In the end, he was forced to leave his homeland his brother hated him, wanted to kill him. I mean, that's why he ends up having to, having to run off. His father's trust and respect are destroyed between him and Jacob. He got the birthright. He got the blessing. He got both of those things, but he lost big time in other areas. So now we come to Genesis chapter uh, 28. And let me just say this. I believe that it wasn't God's will. God had a plan where Eventually, Jacob was going to end up with the birthright and with the blessing anyway. I just think God had a very different path by which that was going to happen. I think God had a different way of getting Jacob to that point, but Jacob kind of took things in his own hands, and he's kind of, kind of got an underhanded way. So we're in Genesis chapter 28 now. We've just found out that uh, brother Esau wants to kill him, and, and mom and dad decide the best thing to do, rather than let... Jacob stay around and gets killed by Esau is send him off 500 miles away to Haran to the, to the place where Rebekah's brother Laban lives. And uh, he'll be safe there, and he, he, might, he might even find a wife while he's over there. And so that, that, that's, the, that's the thing that happens here. In Genesis chapter 28, I think you have the low point of Jacob's life. He is hated by, uh, by his father and by his brother, He's forced to leave. There is no trust. And as he leaves the house there, we're talking about maybe a few days just after all this, this blessing has been conveyed to Jacob rather than Esau. Just a few days later, he has made about a, a journey of about 50 miles. He is around the place called Luz all alone. And like I say, this is the low point, but this low point becomes the turning point for him. God gives him a dream. God shares with him his dream for him. And, and this is where you have those angels ascending and descending from heaven. And at the very top of that ladder, there's, a, uh, there's God who is somehow visible or somehow seen in this dream. I don't know exactly what the dream means. I, I don't know this. But I, I do know what, what God said to him here is very clear. We don't have to guess about that. 
First of all, God repeats to him the same promise that he made to Abraham all so many years ago and then had repeated to Isaac, and now he's going to say it to Jacob. That's 28, 12 through 14. Let's read that. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, right here, Bethel or Luz, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And the three promises that God made to Abraham now are being conveyed directly to Jacob. Besides that, verse 15, there's a couple personal promises God makes to Jacob. He says, Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to take care of you. And I'm going to bring you back to this spot for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. So there's some personal promises here. So here's Jacob's response, verses 16 and 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And then Jacob makes a vow to the Lord. This is verses 20 and 21. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. And I want to I emphasize the word my here. The last time that Jacob has said anything about God is actually back in chapter 27 and verse 20. And I, I want to jump back there and just kind of uh, make a comparison here. He says, you know, if the Lord does all these things for me, then the Lord is going to be my God. Well, what was he before? Was he not your God, Jacob? And, 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 and this is where I'm going with this. I think it's at this point that Jacob finally decides that this Jehovah is his God. I'm not sure that he was after that point. And the reason I'm saying this, if you go back to chapter 27, that whole incident there where Jacob gets involved in deceit, Goes out, uh, you know, the brother goes out to hunt the, hunt the food and all that. Jacob and Rebecca, uh, Rebecca stay there. They're, uh, they're fixing up some savory food. They bring it in real quick. And, and Isaac's kind of wondering, oh, that was awful quick. And Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have, so, that you, uh, have it so quickly, my son? And here's what Jacob said. Because the Lord your God caused it to happen. Now, I, I, just interesting to me, as I make that comparison, and maybe I'm making too much out of this thing, but I think Jacob thought of this whole thing about Jehovah and everything that was happening in his family as his mom and dad's religion. It was their thing. And, and when he's questioned about how he gets back so quickly, so whatever, you're God. You're God's the ones that did this. But there it was, after he slept on the rock and all those things that happened, what does he say? He says, you know, Lord, if you're going to do all these things for me, then you will be my God. I think something happens here in Genesis chapter 28. It was the low point of his life, but it was a turning point. Because I think what happens here is Jacob has a new understanding of who God is. There's a new, something new that develops here. He sets a new course. There's a new dream. And the point is this. We need to be careful that we are dreaming God's dream and not our own dream. 
It's so easy to delude ourselves into thinking that our vision of the future is God's dream for us. And sometimes we're just sadly mistaken. I want to give you just six important truths very quickly about God's dream for us. Just some things to think about. Six things here. Number one, God's dream for us will never contradict the word of God. Whatever it is, the, the dream of uh, the personal dreams that we have or the dreams that we have as a congregation or as a family or whatever, whatever we're thinking about, it's never going to contradict the word of God. It should be right in line with that. I think that's uh, kind of a no-brainer. Number two, God is never going to require us to manipulate or deceive or lie or cheat or steal or use people in order for his dream to become a reality. I think that's a, I think that's a no-brainer too. That's not his way. That's not how God operates. That's now he, not how he wants us to operate. But that's how Jacob spent the first half of his life. Manipulating, deceiving, scheming, trying to figure out how to get some advantage. So whatever God's dream is, it's not going to be that. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. This would be his third uh, of the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, the meek guy is not, not something. You don't have to be afraid of him. He's, he's, all the cards are on top of the table. He's telling you exactly how it is. He's not trying to do you in. He's not got some kind of hidden agenda. It's not secrets or he's trying to, you know, trip you up or whatever. He's just who he is. And Jesus says, it's the meek who inherit the earth. Amazing, isn't it? There's another uh, verse kind of along this line. It's Mark chapter 9, verse 35. When Jesus is talking to his disciples one day, it says, Setting down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Well, Jacob had been anything but a servant up to this point in his life. It was all about him and getting what he wanted. Didn't understand this business about service. So, God's dream for us is not going to contradict his word. It's never going to require us to manipulate or deceive or lie or cheat. Here's number three. God's dream for us is always going to require all of us our total commitment. You understand what I'm saying? There's no half in, half out thing with God's dream for us. That's not how he operates either. Jacob had been in a covenant with God up to the time he was 77 years of age. Been in a covenant relationship. He'd gone to church with his parents just like everybody else had. But God was not in control in his life. He was kind of going through the motions. And here's the thing. You cannot use God as your 911, as your fix-it for your problems, or to get what, what you want. That isn't how it works. In that case, Jesus is not Lord. He's your 911. He's your fix-it guy. He's your guy that will take your plan and, and make sure that it happens. Jesus said this in Luke 9, 23. He says, if any man comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. God uses this, uh, uh, God teaches us this principle about, uh, you know, it, it's a daily thing where we pick up our cross and we follow him. And so God's dream is always going to require our total commitment to his dream. Here's number four. God's dream is almost always bigger and more challenging than the small dreams that we have for ourselves, than our selfish dreams. It's almost always bigger 
and more challenging than the dreams we have for ourselves. I think you can safely say that. You know, we, we, we kind of operate on one scale. God is operating on another scale. And when you get involved in his stuff, it's going it's gonna to be kind of scary every now and then, you know? I mean, because he, he's thinking in ways that we don't think about. And he's got ideas that we, we just don't have. I wanted to just maybe stop here and talk about the dreams of, of the church. Sometimes churches have uh, what I would call a small dream and maybe a selfish dream. Sometimes churches get content with being just exactly what they are. It's comfortable. It feels good. And they don't want anything to change very much because they just don't want things to change very much, okay? Can you understand what I'm saying? They kind of like it the way it is. Now, that presents a dilemma for a lot of churches. It, it presents a dilemma for us. Let me put it to you this way. I think you'll see the logic of this. Our elders have set for us this goal, and I think this, this is a goal that they receive from the Lord, that we would not lose a single young person, a single person out of this congregation that every one of them would remain faithful to the Lord and that whoever they marry would somehow end up being here. And we're not, we're, Our intent is not to lose a single child, a single convert. We want to keep them all. So let's just start. We, we, we're always going to be adding to and never losing. That's the goal. I think that's God's goal for us too. Now put alongside of that the Great Commission. The Great Commission says go out there and get more people. There is no choice. There is no choice but for us to grow in numbers from where we are. Not, not if we're going to remain true to the things that we say that we're about. We're talking about uh, the, the people who are here. We want to keep them. And we're also talking about the Great Commission. We're supposed to add to that number. One of the most difficult uh, transitions that a church has to make is the one that we are facing. I, I've read a few books here and there uh, about church growth. And the transition that we have to make is the most difficult that a church has to make, and it's this. It's very easy, fairly easy, for a church to get to that 250, 275, 300 mark, operating just exactly the way we do. No big changes required, whether it's a church of 75 or 50 or whether it's a church of 300. It operates basically the same way. But when a church decides to go, when a church wants to go beyond that, things have to start changing. It has to operate in a different way. And what happens a lot of times is people resist those changes because they like it the way it is. They want it to be just the way it is. And that's what makes it so hard. The preacher doesn't want to change because the preacher's doing it the, the way he does it. And the elders don't want to change because the elders are used to doing it the way they've always done it. And the deacons don't want to change because the deacons are used to doing it the way they've always done it. And the people who are sitting in the, in the crowd don't want to change because they're just used to doing the way they've always done it. But if we are going to remain true to that goal of not losing a single person, if we're going to remain true to the Great Commission, we have no choice. Change is going to happen. Change will come. Now, let's go for number five. 
Sometimes God must let our dreams be destroyed in order to put his dreams in place. Did you notice what happened to Jacob here? Everything that this guy had been working for all of his life, for the first 77 years of his life, just went down the drain when he did that little deception thing about the blessing. His brother wanted to kill him. And what he ends up, he ends up with the clothes on his back, running 500 miles away to Haran by himself. He's got to leave home because they're going to kill him if he doesn't. And he does, he's never met Laban. He doesn't know who that, who that guy is, but he just kind of knows because that's his mother's uh, brother. And he's headed that way. Everything he'd been working for, first 77 years, that was his dream. Down the tubes. So everything Jacob worked for the first half of his life was taken away. And you know when that happens to us, we may be angry because we think, well, God has let us down. God hasn't done what he was supposed to do. But that's exactly the time that we need to be looking for God's dream to take its place. God may be destroying the old dream, the selfish dream, that he might put in place a grander thing, a better thing for us. Here's number six. It's never too late to start dreaming God's dream. Regardless of how bad we mess up, regardless of what, you know, how long we've been working on it and pushing for it and, and, and carrying on and all this, if you let's look at the story of Jacob. God gave his dream to Jacob at the low point in his life. He is 77 years old at this point. Now, he lived to be 147. And basically what that means is, is Jacob wasted the first half of his life working on something that couldn't happen. Isn't that amazing? He spent the first half of his life working on something that could never happen because it wasn't God's dream. It was his dream. And here's what I'm asking you to do this morning. This is very simple. I just want you to take, all of us, to take an honest look at the dreams that we currently hold for our personal lives, for, for our families, and for this church. An honest look at the dreams that we currently hold and ask ourselves, are they God's dreams for us? Or is this just me imposing my stuff on God? It's something to think about. Have I just simply taken my agenda and shoved it before the Father and said, hey, here it is. Put your stamp of approval on this and let's go. If they are selfish dreams, and that's all they are, how many years do we intend to waste? How much of our lives are we going to throw away before we lay down the selfish dream? And pick up the dream that God has for us. Just think about that. Maybe there's uh, someone here this morning that's not a Christian. And I'm going to tell you, God's first and foremost dream for you is that you would be with him in eternity. He is building a mansion for you, a room for you right now. He's been doing it since Jesus left this earth 2,000 years ago. I mean, I'm going to tell you, that's really nice. That's good stuff. When God has been working that long on your room, it's going to be special, isn't it? He's got a dream for you. He's got a place for you. And if you have not claimed that place by putting on Jesus Christ in baptism, faith and baptism, this morning is your time. We're going to sing our hymn of invitation. If you need to respond, please come to the front and be ready to say, yes, I do believe in Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. And I'm ready to, uh, I'm, I'm repenting. I'm ready to live the rest of my life for him. Quit living for myself. I want to be his child. I want to be in his kingdom. Confess that faith and then to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ.
And so if the, if the response, if, if you want to respond in that way this morning, we're here and we want to help you. Let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation if you need to come, need to respond.